I want to begin by uh, reading uh, an account written by a man named uh, Gen uh, Dennis Jernigan. Uh, it's a bit lengthy here, but I think an appropriate start for uh, our subject this morning. Uh, he writes, My relationship with my parents from talking with many others over the years was quite typical for my generation. Uh, we were not an affectionate family. While I did feel affection from my mother, I never remember receiving physical affection from my father or among my brothers and myself. My daddy was very hardworking. We were not poor, but we were not rich monetarily. In addition to working the farm, my dad was employed by a utility company and eventually worked as a mechanic for many years. Since I've gotten older, God has reminded me of many ways my father expressed affection and love for me as I was growing up. My problem was not my father. My problem was that I believed a lie. When Satan got his foot in the door of my heart, any rejection, no matter how big or how small, was perceived as a lack of love from my dad or whomever I felt rejected by at the time. Looking back, I realized that I was a very selfish child. From the earliest I can remember, I found it hard to believe anyone loved me, felt worthless. Since I didn't believe anyone loved me, I couldn't really receive love. What I did discover, though, was that if I did something well, people would like me. So I tried to be the best in whatever I did, schoolwork, basketball, music, etc. But I became so frustrated because no matter how well I performed, it never seemed to be good enough. I was very miserable and felt all alone. Sports and grades weren't giving me any hope, neither was music. Because I made choices based upon how or what I perceived people thought of me, I became a very selfish person, usually at the expense of others and most often at the expense of my little brothers. What people thought was so good, my outward performance, soon began to hide the deepest hurts and failures of my heart. And I must admit that my uh, daddy and mama never missed one single event I was involved in while growing up. This should have spoken volumes to me. Still, I chose to believe a lie. Now I need to tell you about what I consider to be the most painful part of my life, a part I tried to hide. Since I felt so rejected, I allowed it to permeate every part of my life. What I didn't realize was that Satan was lying to me, all the while trying to keep me from God's plan for my life. This included the sexual part of my life. In this area, I felt so ashamed and afraid of rejection that I became even more selfish and perverted in my way of thinking. As a boy, I needed a role model to show me the way to manhood. But because I felt rejected by the main man in my life, I in turn rejected him and began to yearn for intimacy with the man. Because of this wrong thinking, I came to believe that I was homosexual. It must have begun very early in my life because I remember having those feelings for the same gender at a very early age. I hid this from others through high school and through my four years at Oklahoma Baptist University, even though it wasn't hidden from those I had relations with. I might add that even though I was involved in homosexuality through my college days, I still regard that time with fondness. It is in looking back that I can see the awesome and mighty hand of God ministering his love to me in the midst of my sin and confusion. Because of my lack of musical training while growing up, my musical studies at OBU were like learning a whole new language. To be able to actually read and write the music I could see or hear was like a whole new world opening up to me. This would be very valuable later in life as I began to express my heart and my feelings in song. We'll come back to uh, another part of uh, this article that uh, Dennis has written. There are a number of them on his site. Uh, the reason I wanted to read from him, uh, the song that we just sang was written by him. Uh, that is a hymn that he wrote. Uh, you're my all in all. 
somebody who uh, now lives, uh, I believe, in Muskogee. Uh, he uh, is married. Uh, he and his wife have nine children uh, there in Muskogee. He's written a number of hymns. A couple of them we've sung. We'll sing a second one uh, during our invitation song. He grew up with this uh, struggle of uh, homosexuality or same-sex attraction, as we'll refer to it a number of different times today. Uh, but worked through those things and arrived at a different conclusion than at least our culture would push him uh, today. Today begins our Embodied series. Uh, we'll take a break next week. Uh, you will. I'm going to talk about this lesson and then lesson number two elsewhere, uh, and then we'll come back together and uh, continue on uh, with the series from there. Uh, but we're going to be dealing with homosexuality today uh, as embodied. I won't really explain uh, too much today, why this is the series title, but this was very much intentional. Uh, we'll probably get more into that with lesson number two. And we're starting with homosexuality today, uh, and uh, I, I want to spend time uh, breaking this series down in a very similar way uh, to the addiction series that we did, uh, where our lessons were broken down into being informed uh, about the, uh, the issue uh, being prepared to have a biblical response to that issue, uh, and then understanding our involvement in bringing those two pieces together. Okay, because our interest, and we will affirm this very heavily at the end, uh, our interest uh, is not to identify things that are sinful so that we can uh, call them out and, and shame people for those things, but to bring people from where they are to where God wants them to be. And we are a part of that work as God's kingdom people. That's what we do. So that's what we're going to talk about today with respect to homosexuality. Uh, I want to add this as well. Uh, we've read from Dennis this morning. We're going to read from a few other people uh, that deal with same-sex attraction as well that also have a belief in Jesus. Uh, the two of them will be good. Uh, one of them will be a not-so-good quote, uh, but we'll talk about those things as we go along. Uh, let's start with being informed uh, as to what is going on with this subject in particular. If you would like to turn in your Bibles ahead of time, James 1 is where we're going to start here uh, in just a little bit uh, after we understand uh, this a little better. Uh, in thinking about being informed about homosexuality and uh, really how it comes about, my, my goal is not to—I uh, I, I am working on the assumption that we understand uh, what homosexuality is— uh, and then just going from there. There are really two parts to this. Uh, the first one uh, is nature. Uh, there's been a big discussion uh, around homosexuality with, with nature, uh, that this is in people's nature to be this way. In fact, the phrase uh, at the bottom of this slide, uh, born this way, uh, is a phrase uh, that has been championed by a number of people, uh, those within uh, the LGBTQ community, uh, to say that, look, this is just who I am, and alongside that, there is no changing this whatsoever. Uh, now, that hasn't been said as much in recent years. It's actually given way to the opposite discussion, uh, and we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. First, uh, I have borne this way, question mark. 
There have been a number of studies, uh, an attempt to find what has been dubbed in a number of places a gay gene, that there is something uh, within our genetic code, our DNA, uh, that gives people this, well, you know, here, here it is, your sexuality has been defined for you, it's in your genetic code, and there is nothing that you can do about that. There have been a number of studies uh, by individuals that have suggested they found it. The problem is, uh, when those studies are revisited, uh, those results cannot be replicated. So those things that have been claimed to have been found can't be found the second time. Uh, one of the things that they have done, uh, that scientists have done in, in regard to this study, uh, is to go look at the genetic code of identical twins. Because you would expect there to be, with uh, the same genetic code, uh, this, this same outcome in the lives of both of them. Except you end up with a lot of identical twins, one that ends up being gay and one that does not. Well, if this is a genetic, there is no changing, it's hardwired, this is how it is, that's not how that would work. And there have been a number of studies uh, to that end as well. And time, a time, and time again, what we see is, yeah, no, you're not really born this way, at least not in the sense of things being hardwired uh, that are unchangeable. Uh, and again, this doesn't reflect the current mindset uh, of people. This is now an old argument. You don't hear this one very much anymore. Uh, and there's a reason for that. We'll talk about it in a moment. I do want to say this, though. I think it's a mistake to say uh, that nature plays no role in this at all. And now, I am not saying uh, that it is something that's fixed and unchangeable. The, the science does not show that. Uh, and then alongside all of that, Scripture does not affirm those things either. That would make God pretty cruel uh, to say, this is the path I want you to take, but I've, as your creator, made you hardwired to go completely against me. That doesn't make sense. But nature can still play a role. I think it plays a role in this way. Uh, I know a number of people uh, that avoid things like, uh, in, in particular, uh, that avoid things like alcohol, because within their family, uh, there is a predisposition. Uh, this, uh, my, you know, my parent was an alcoholic, and then their parent was an alcoholic, and so if I join into that, then I might also, I know a number of people, I'm one of them, I, I won't touch it because I'm very aware uh, of my uh, obsessiveness over things. It is very likely uh, that I would be obsessive with that behavior, and so I avoid it. Uh, and that has been great. Uh, and there are a number of people that follow that same line of thinking, uh, where they have seen what it's done to their parent, who maybe has quit or maybe never has, but they know, man, in my family there runs this temptation, and so I'm not even going to mess with it. We would say they have a predisposition to, to a potential sinful behavior of drunkenness, we would say it's good to avoid that temptation. We'd also have to say, though, that it seems to run in the family. That's, that's nature. Seems to be this thing within the family that makes them more susceptible to this extreme. And so they choose to avoid it. From some of the quotes that we'll uh, look at today, uh, or at least some of the larger uh, material that the quotes come from, the, the books that I've, I've pulled some of these quotes from. 
Uh, the consistent thread, and we saw it in what we just read of uh, Dennis's story there, there is a similar thread uh, in most of the things that I have read uh, about those that eventually come to a belief in Christ as they talk about why they struggle with same-sex attraction. And I'm not saying this is always how it is, because it isn't always this way. But it often is this way, uh, where there seems to be a very large disconnect uh, of affection uh, from a, a parent, normally the father, to that child. Uh, and, I'll add this, in several of the books, the adjoining fact to that uh, that the writer will say is, this didn't give me the issue, uh, but it further made it a problem. Uh, it accelerated the issue. Uh, it made it harder for me to move past uh, because the relationship with the family wasn't there like it was supposed to be. Uh, and so, as we read in Dennis's quote there, uh, he leaned into other individuals, other men, and rejected his father because he felt rejected by his own father. That's a common thread. And there seems to be this little bit of nature that runs through in this uh, situation here of same-sex attraction. We shouldn't throw it out entirely. No, there's no proof that there is a hard wiring. It's been disproved repeatedly, but in the same way that we think of a lot of other uh, sinful behavior, we need to think of this, uh, that nature does seem to play some part. Temptation uh, or predisposition, and we'll talk more about that when we get into our text. Uh, let's talk about nurture then. If it's not nature predominantly, what is it that, what, that, that brings us about? A lot of it has to do with the cultural pressure uh, of the world that we are living in. I, I want to share this uh, poll from Gallup here. Very, uh, we'll say, interesting, uh, if not discouraging, but I think it holds a lot of uh, understanding for us about the, the actual cultural pressure. Since Gallup began measuring LGBT identification in 2012, uh, the percentage of traditionalists, baby boomers, and Generation X adults, so that's, that's the order of it. It's traditionalist, baby boomer, uh, Gen X, millennials, and then Gen Z. I'm millennial. Gen Z are those uh, born in 97, uh, I believe, there. Uh, and so that, the, those are our markers, these five groups. Uh, between those three groups, the oldest three, traditional, uh, traditionalist, baby boomer, and Gen X, adults who identify as LGBT has held relatively steady. Okay, so since 2012 to now, pretty well the same number here. At the same time, there's been a modest uptick among millennials from 5.8% in 2012, uh, when some members of the generation had not yet turned 18, uh, to when many of them did, uh, in 2017, that jumped up from 5.8 to 7.8. So 2% increase in those that identified as uh, LGBT uh, affirming in some way. And in 2022, is up to 10.5% for millennials. That would say, I identify with this community in some way. The percentage of Gen Z who are LGBT who identify in that way, has nearly doubled since 2017, when only the leading edge of that generation, those born between 97 and 99, had reached adulthood. So very few of these are adults that we're talking about here. But with just a few of them turning adults, 
the number has doubled, the percentage has doubled. At that time, 10.5 of the small slice of that generation who were adults identified as LGBT. That number now is 21 percent between 2017 and 2022. A doubling with only a few of them, just a three-year window turning to adults. So we're not seeing what happens when all Gen Z becomes adults yet uh, and how these numbers shake out. Uh, Why read all of that? Uh, Some will look at those statistics and say, well, as we've become more uh, affirming of this Uh, of this lifestyle, this behavior. Culturally, you have more people willing to identify as those things, but that doesn't track with any of the other generations. Uh, Their numbers are uh, remaining relatively the same, and so a more affirming culture where there aren't really repercussions, in fact, there's more accolade and acceptance than anything uh, to come out, uh, you're not seeing it among these other generations. But among our youngest generation, it is skyrocketing. Why? Well, because it's everywhere. You know how many discussions I've had uh, in the last couple of weeks since announcing this of people saying, yeah, my kid has told me about some other kids that they're with at school who identify in these ways, and they have conversations about it, uh, and that includes... Uh, elementary school-aged kids. It's, it's everywhere with our youngest generation. And it's positive everywhere among our youngest generation. And those that are younger, I mean, just even look at the, the phrasing, traditionalists, uh, baby boomers, genetic, right? There is this, uh, this, this is how it's been. Those that are younger, a lot more impressionable, have less set-in-stone values and belief system, a lot more impressionable, and we're seeing the results of that, of a heavy cultural pressure on people that are saying, just uh, affirm this. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's great. It might even be better for you if you affirm in these ways, and we're seeing the results of that sort of teaching. The percentage is skyrocketing. Uh, And pay attention over the next few years with Gen Z as more and more of them become adults, 18 and up, uh, how this number changes. Uh, because whether we like it or not, that's the landscape uh, that we are in. Uh, here is the uh, informed part of this lesson. You take some, not all of those, some uh, that have some amount of predisposition, temptation. Uh, they have, at the very least, uh, the pieces that you need in the environment that they have grown up in, Uh, to have a greater potential of, given the right cultural pressure, to identify as uh, same-sex attracted, LGBT, uh, however you want to phrase that. So when you take that predisposition for some and the very heavy cultural pressure that is overwhelmingly positive, uh, and it's all over our social media, not Facebook so much. So if that's the only place you go and I'm at... I'm at that age where Facebook's the only one that I have. I have a long time been a uh, champion of technology and what it can do for, uh, for Christians and church things. Uh, and then I hit, I don't know, it was before I was 30, but I'll blame it on my 30s of, I'll just have the one, I don't really care about 
the TikToks and the other things and whatever. But I do know what's going on there, and an overwhelming majority of those things are promoting this. And so it's no surprise, with that amount of cultural pressure in the affirmative and the positive, that you're going to see a drastic increase, and that will only continue uh, within our culture. There's more to be said there. Uh, We don't have time to cover everything, but please, uh, and I'll say this in a moment as well, uh, if there's more that you want to talk about, let's talk about those things uh, whenever you're able. All right, James chapter 1. Here's what we're going to do as far as preparation goes. Uh, There are a number of places that we could turn to today to look at this subject uh, within Scripture, a number of different angles that we can look at it. Uh, I just want to focus on two. Uh, the first here is in James. I want to start reading verse 12 uh, through verse 17. Here's, uh, we'll go through verse 18. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That 12 through 15 section first. Uh, Verse 12 really sounds like the summing up, not a good beginning point uh, for us. Uh, If you were to back all the way up into verse 2, that's where you have the count it all joy uh, when you encounter trials of various kinds. And then you have verse 12 that says, you know, remain steadfast in your trials. You'll receive the crown of life. Summing up of this idea. Uh, And then in verse 13, we move into temptation. Now, here's the thing with that. As far as the Greek is concerned, trial and temptation are the exact same word. There's there's no original language shift here. In English, it's different, uh, but in the original writing, it's not. Some of you might actually have temptation in verse 12. uh, Blessed is he who remains steadfast under temptation. It's all the same word. Now, temptation is a kind of trial, but it's a very specific kind. Trial, as it's, uh, as it's uh, translated for us in English in the first 12 verses, uh, are those things from without. Uh, those things out here uh, that happen to us, other people, uh, things that just tragedies, accidents that befall us, that cause us some sort of trial. It's this thing from the outside that affects us. Temptation is a trial, but it's this thing that comes from within. And that's how it's defined. That's why we have them in English translated differently uh, so that we can separate them in our study. It's one of those rare cases where uh, having the same word given to us two different ways is actually helpful for us. In verse 13, the temptation is defined in this way. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's this thing from within. Now, there might be some things on the outside uh, that, that prompt the temptation. There might be some things that uh, cause the temptation to be accelerated. Okay, but it's this thing from within. And James says, following this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, 
uh, brings forth death. A couple of thoughts here with this. Number one, temptation isn't sin. It is very important that we understand this point. Temptation's not sin. And even if you understand that already, don't need me to say all of this, uh, don't need us to look into James as to how he's saying all of this, even if you don't need me to do that, because you're like, I, I get there, this affects how we're going to involve ourselves in the lives of those struggling with same-sex attraction. Okay, so it's important that we understand this point. Temptation is not sin. We are told that Jesus is, uh, was tempted in every way, as we are, yet did not sin. Very clear distinction made between temptation and giving in to that temptation, which is what James spells out for us here. Temptation is this thing that is this desire from within, and it doesn't become a problem until we start to give in to that desire. And by the way, just so we're clear, James is not talking about specifically homosexuality. He's talking about any desire that runs contrary to God. That'll be a theme we see in a moment as well. But James is laying out for us, look, temptation's not the sin part, but temptation can lead to sin. Temptation, this desire from within, if you give into it, can lead to that. But we need to understand temptation's not sin. Here's why that's important. For a lot of people, uh, as they, or a lot of, a lot of Christians, uh, as they think about uh, how to address homosexuality, the goal for many of them, and maybe you, uh, the, the goal is we need to convert them to heterosexuality. We need to make sure, we, we need to bring them to marriage and family. That is the route that some choose. Others choose to remain single and not acting on that desire. Heterosexuality is not the goal. Christianity is. Jesus is. And somebody can struggle with this temptation as they can struggle with any number of other temptations. And you may be listening to this and going, this isn't my problem. Okay, you've got some desire in you that you have to keep in check. And James is talking about that too. He's talking about you and me too. And we can have those desires and deal and struggle with those temptations, still be Christian. And it becomes our responsibility as Christians to not give in to those desires, to let them lead us to sin, but instead, like verses 16 through 18 talk about, follow after God the good things that he has provided for us and becoming like him, following him, following the word of truth, becoming like our Father, who is, is light. There's no shadow or change in him being like him instead. But all of us have that fight. Different things, but we all have that fight. The temptation is not the sin. It can lead there. We don't keep it in check. Number two, temptation is not permission. The way this section starts out, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Uh, there is something within uh, the Jewish culture at that time, uh, and even before that, it was called the Yetzer Hara. Uh, it was this idea that, well, as we would maybe phrase it today, uh, I was born this way, I was made this way, because they had a strong belief that God was the creator. And God, as my creator, created me this way and gave me this 
struggle, this desire. Therefore, that desire is not bad because my creator is perfect. And that was the argument. And so you have people going around saying, well, if God made me and he made that desire within me, that desire is good. James says, no, that's, that's not how that works. That isn't how it works. Let no one say when he is tempted, when he has these desires that go counter to what Scripture has laid out in a number of places, and we'll be there in just a moment, what Scripture has laid out in a number of places. Don't say, well, but God made me and he put this desire within me, therefore it's... No, if it runs counter to what God's Word says, because there's no change in him, there's no shadow... He is who he is, always. And so if there is some desire that runs counter to him, it's not good. Don't say, well, because God made me and made the desire, the desire's fine. James says that's, that's not permission. That temptation's not permission uh, to do the thing. We must instead follow after the unchanging God and be like him as best we can. Number two. There are a number of verses up here. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, though. We're just going to reference the others. Uh, in Romans 1, you have a listing and a discussion uh, in a very big way about the uh, godless Gentiles. Uh, but then Paul will go from there into the next chapters to say, uh, and here is how the godless Gentiles looked an awful lot like the Jewish people who knew God and continued to act like godless Jewish people. Okay, so Paul uses one to lead into the other to hit at everybody uh, in the book. But in Romans chapter 1, there's very clearly a discussion about uh, homosexuality in a couple of places. That's not the only thing that's discussed there, but it is very specifically drawn out in Romans 1. Uh, and it's very clearly laid out for us uh, in a uh, negative way there. Uh, in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, there is a listing of... Uh, what are called unrighteous uh, behavior, sinful behavior there. Homosexuality is one of those things, and we'll see that here in 1 Corinthians 6. Before we read it, uh, I told you that we were going to quote from some uh, same-sex uh, attracted believers. This is the not-so-good quote. Uh, so it, it has to have been within the last couple of years, uh, because I've been here two years uh, as of this last month, uh, and it was here that uh, all the news of this broke, and I went and watched uh, this lecture. Uh, there is a lady, she's a member of the church, uh, who has for a long time uh, been celibate, that's, that's the choice, remain single, not give in to this desire because God does not want me doing those things, and has helped a lot of people uh, within that, that struggle. But within the last couple of years, uh, and I'm not sure how old she is, 40s, 50s, somewhere in there. Uh, she flipped on that. And so she's come to the conclusion now that God is fine uh, with her uh, being in a relationship with another woman, that, that God doesn't care. In fact, uh, there are a number of places in Scripture where it's okay, uh, that the places where it talks about these things don't condemn this behavior. And so I went and listened to uh, the hour-long lesson she gave where she announced that. There was one verse actually talked about 
And she said that she had conversations and, and she'd be happy to have more conversations with others personally about those verses if they wanted to. But it took almost the whole thing to get to here's where God has said it's fine and here's how I've changed my mind. Almost the whole thing. An hour-long discussion. And this is what we got. That there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about when God is and not, not speaking on the subject, by the way, speaking to Israel in their captivity and the hope that is beyond captivity, the, the return from exile, which the prophets talk about at length, the, this future hope. And they're thinking, leaving exile, and God is saying, yes, that, but also this Messiah that will come later. That'll be better than anything you can imagine. Okay, but they don't get that part yet. And in Isaiah, where it's talking about that, you have this phrase, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. And that was it. That was the quote. That was the entire reasoning. God's doing a new thing in my life. That's what she said. And that was it. And that was good enough. Every time that we see this, subject discussed in Scripture. And you can go read Romans 1. You can go read 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Um, Leviticus is one that often gets brought up, though you might be going, yeah, but in Leviticus it also says these other things, and don't we, uh, we, we don't follow the Old Testament anymore, and so why are we bringing up Leviticus? Because the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. But here's the point. When something is always negatively discussed, within Scripture, then you have to go outside of Scripture to say, well, God's fine with it. Because there's nowhere in here that it says that he is. Now, there are plenty of arguments, and I am more than happy to talk to you personally about these things. Just, I'm more than happy to do it here. Maybe we'll do a separate lesson covering these things. There are a number of arguments that people will make of, well, Paul, when he wrote about this, or Jesus, when he's talking and affirming marriage in this way, or the sexual relationship only in this way, which we will talk about uh, in our, our last lesson, uh, that they didn't have in mind uh, consensual behavior. They didn't have in mind proper power dynamics. They were only addressing, and I'm more than happy to talk about those things. It does not change the fact that God would have to be doing a new thing. Because as this has been understood for thousands of years, and from as early as uh, the law, really, as we'll see in a few lessons from now, as early as the creation, when God says, this is how I have defined an appropriate sexual relationship. From the very beginning, all the way through, homosexuality is described negatively, never positively. But there's more to it than that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause there. We'll read verse 11 in just a moment. I want you to notice, Paul doesn't say, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Only those that struggle with homosexuality pra practice those things 
won't get in. You notice that there's a longer list here than just the one thing. And that's important, too, because we need to understand, as Scripture talks about homosexuality, it does not talk about it as the sin. It's a sin. Now, it might be different uh, in consequences or practice than other sins, but it remains within this category of unrighteousness. And there's a very real, we'll say, temptation uh, with us, those those that maybe don't struggle with that, and there may be some here that do struggle with this. There's a very real temptation uh, for those that do not struggle with these things to elevate that as worse than. But that's not the way it's listed out for us. Okay, 1 Timothy 8 through 10, 1, 8 through 10, it's in a list with other things. It's a sin, not the sin. Don't elevate it. And then notice what happens in verse 11. Great verse. And such were some of you. What that means here is some of them were thieves, some of them were greedy, some of them were practicing homosexuality, some of them were idolaters and adulterers, but they aren't that now. It says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When this subject is talked about within Scripture, it is negatively discussed, but... It is always discussed with the potential for redemption. It's not irredeemable. It's, it's not too far beyond the bounds of what Jesus is able to save somebody from. It is something that God can deliver people from. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, well, then, okay, they'll go from that and then they'll get married and have... The, That's not what that means. It means that they can go from living a life outside of Christ in this way, or that way, or that way, or that way, or that way, and come to a life in Christ this way. That's what it means. How do we bridge that gap? I know we're going over time. Sorry, I'm blaming it on Cole. Uh, It's not your fault. It's my fault. God can forgive me for that, too. How do we involve... Number one, before we talk about uh, our, our last two quotes here, and these will go, go quicker. One word, family. Family. Here's how we don't fix this. Here, here's how we do not bridge the gap of people struggling in this way, bring them to Christ over here. I know how we'll solve the issue. Uh, we can make sure that it's quite clear that everybody knows from uh, shouting or from signs or Facebook posts or from joking and making fun of other people that God does not approve of this behavior. That's how we'll bridge the gap. That isn't it. And there's a real temptation to make jokes. Because, well, you know, I don't struggle with that. I'll make jokes about it. And no. Because our job is not to properly identify and say this is sinful behavior, so I'm going to call it sinful behavior, and my job is done. That's not it. We understand what sinful behavior is because God is interested in those things being rid in his creation, gone from his creation. 
and we are a part of that. So we need to understand what that sinful behavior is so that we can be part of the, the cleanup, getting those things out. Okay, the goal is not to identify, call it out, and then we're done. It's to help people, wherever they are, get from outside of Christ to a relationship with Christ. And that is not done from uh, just quoting, I'll quote Leviticus, or I'll quote 1 Corinthians 6. It's not how it's done. Here's how it's done. Family, a couple things I want to highlight here. Uh, we read Luke 9.23 a little bit ago. Uh, denying self, pick up your cross, follow me. That is not an easy thing to do. It's a very challenging and demanding thing to do. Uh, I was at an elder workshop yesterday, uh, filming it uh, for uh, just editing and release later so that some other churches could host their uh, elder workshop as well with the same lessons. And one of the speakers there uh, talked about following uh, and this passage, uh, and that the word there has this idea of, of clinging closely to something else. So if you are denying self, there are these desires that you want to cling closely to, but instead, I'm going to reject those things and cling closely to something else that is Jesus and what he's done for me. That, that relationship, cling closely to that instead. Now, what I'm talking about here is this. We, as God's family, must make sure we are clinging to Jesus, following him with everything we've got. This is in your bulletin, uh, but I want to read it out loud here. Uh, the author's name is Jackie Hill Perry. Her book is Gay Girl, Good God. She is now married as well. That's the route that, that she chose with all of this. Struggles with same-sex attraction still. Uh, but one of the things that she cites as her change, and I thought this was a great quote, why hadn't they, she was speaking directly about preachers here, why hadn't they mentioned the place happiness had within righteousness? Or how taking up of the cross would be a practice of obtaining delight, delight in all that God is. I just wonder if they would have told me about the beauty of God just as much, if not more, than they told me about the horridness of hell if I would have burned my idols at a faster pace. Hey, she's hearing lessons about this subject and going, well, you know, you can't go to the kingdom of God if you do those things. That'll send you straight to hell. That's one of those things God's not okay with. And that wasn't motivating. It didn't address the deep hurt that she had that was helping to nurture this same-sex attraction that she was struggling with. Didn't address those things. And it wasn't until some believers came along that were denying of themselves in various ways and following after Jesus and joyful about the challenge of denying self and following him. That's what changed her mind. If we, want to bridge, if we want to bridge the gap, we've got to be a family that follows God with everything that we've got. We'll see this more in the second quote, in the second word here. We've got to be a family that invites. Uh, last reading here. This, this is incredible. Uh, this, this change that occurs here. Author's name of this particular book, which uh, next year as we talk about evangelism, 
this is one of uh, resources that uh, we'll bring into that, at least for a class I'm teaching. Uh, the author struggles with same-sex attraction, but here is what changed, not, not stopping the struggle, but here's what shifted her mind entirely on Christian people. Hey, notice what's said here. She's sitting out in a, uh, in a driveway outside of somebody's house she was invited to, some, uh, some believers there. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened in the way I expected, not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus, made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sexual sin. This Christian home was where I wrestled with my sexual identity and where I was dared asked uh, and where I first dared ask the question, is being a lesbian who I really am, or is it how the fall of Adam made me? When I first stepped into the home of Ken and Floyd Smith, I believed that religious liberty was a ruse that Christians used to garner uh, unearned cultural capital. If you had told me 20 years ago that religious liberty is a manifestation of kindness, I would have laughed in your face. But that is what I now deeply and truly believe. Long before she got into a church, she was in the home of Christians while she was in school, spending a couple years there at various times throughout, and it was in the home. The, the stuff on the walls, the way that she was greeted, the other Christians that came in, the interactions that they had with each other, that's what changed everything for her. That's what made her ask the questions, who does God want me to be? The, these things that I'm fighting here, are, are those appropriate? Or does God want me to be something else? Because a family invited her in. We want to bridge this gap. Yeah, eventually, eventually, there need to be discussions, probably, about uh, theology, and here's what God has said about this, and let's study what the words mean, and why Paul's talking about this thing, and why it's laid out in Leviticus this way, and what, yes. Probably not going to start there. It starts with these people, and I am convinced that a large part of the nurturing that is happening right now, especially among those that are younger, they are looking for a place to belong, and they're finding the wrong place. And there should be no better community in all of the world than that of the Christian community. And when Christians are truly a family of God that is following, that is clinging to Jesus, that have their own struggles and difficulties that they're open and honest about, and how they've set those things aside and fight them maybe every day in an effort to be more like their Savior. 
when, when that family invites people in who are also struggling and looking for a place to belong and looking for something good, something to bring them peace, that's how this gap is bridged. That's how people who are outside the kingdom come to be a part of it. I want to end with one last quote here from, from Dennis. This is the end of this particular uh, uh, testimony of his, though he's written a number of other things about his life. Your circumstances, your sins, your wounds, etc. may all be different than mine, but the answer is still the same, Jesus. You may have been sinned against and wounded very deeply. For those times you are not guilty. If you have been used or abused in any way, you can be healed. Do not receive the false guilt that Satan would try to put on you because of circumstances that were beyond your control. I urge you to deal with your own heart and the things that you were and are responsible for, like attitudes, actions, thoughts, and feelings. There is hope for the hurting. I don't know what you're struggling with this this morning. Uh, it, it may very well be same-sex attraction. It's it's very likely uh, that you know somebody who is, whether you know they are or not, right now. Maybe you're struggling with something else. It's in the family of God that people's lives are changed from these desires from within or the trials from without that pull us in different directions and say there's something better here. I think it's appropriate. Uh, I'll, I'll offer the invitation now and then uh, be ready. If you are struggling, I, I cannot promise that we're going to perfectly uh, handle the discussion. I cannot promise that everything is going to go smoothly, but I can promise uh, that the family of God here is going to try. We, we've got mistakes too, struggles too going to try to help you in whatever you're struggling with to bring you where God wants you to be into the, the challenging but rewarding completely worth it carrying of the cross and denial of ourselves if we can help you in that way let us know seems appropriate to, to end this way. We started with this song, All in All. I have to imagine Dennis as he's writing that song and the words, you're my strength when I am weak. That he's thinking about his story. But then changing from that, that, that weakness you're the, the treasure that I seek. doesn't matter what you're struggling with. Jesus has the strength for it. Jesus is worth giving those things up for. So that you and, and me and all of us in this room can sing this next song that Dennis wrote about all that Jesus has done for us.